0: Yeah, it's, it's not my intention to work with people who've been severely traumatized. I think a lot of us have some degree of trauma, particularly people of color. Uh, we encounter trauma daily, oftentimes. But um, when it comes to intense trauma, then that's very hard to work with because I do absorb some of that emotion that comes out of my clients.
1: people of color are spilling their guts and uh, doing education uh, to white people. Let me explain to you how you've got this wrong. Let me explain to you how you've got that wrong. Let me explain. And then we get cross-examined and it's like, well, maybe your problem is blah 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 blah, And it's always, you know, racism gets looked at as a person of color's problem. And it's not. You know, we're like on the receiving end of the problem, but we are not the problem. You know, I, I I walk in a world where, uh, where black people, where Latinos, where Asians, where Arabs, all these different people are, 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 are experienced as problem people, and that well, we're going to deal with the, the 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 person of color problem when in fact racism is essentially a white problem, and that for you to understand what. Racism is about, you're going to be so uncomfortable. You're going to be so different from who you see yourself to be now that, uh, it, you know, there's just no way for you to get it from where you're sitting. And I'm not saying that you could never get it. I mean that uh, that you need to uh, step outside of your skin and step outside of what uh, seems really comfortable and familiar to you and launch out into some real for you unknown territory and you haven't gone out there like you haven't uh you know gotten in proximity to uh, black people as you say because you don't have to you know i'm not going to trust you until you're as willing to be changed and affected by my experience and transformed by my experience as i am every day by yours
2: this is between us i'm john totten All I know about what it's like to not be white is what I can learn from others. I can't speak authoritatively of anyone's experience other than my own. This, for me, is a basic principle of therapy, that I can only be curious and open to the experience of others. The more different we are, the more there is for me to be curious about, And yet, to inquire is to say, I'm willing to wrestle with all the things you tell me that might not be easy to wrestle with. So too often, we remain uninterested because we think it's too difficult. I was curious about the generational trauma that Jenny Henderson experiences and how it influences her work as a mental health counselor. Her grandfather was murdered by police outside of Ferguson, Missouri. Now she's a counselor who works both in private practice, but also entrenched in the system. Her job is to meet with teenagers who are in trouble and to get them the mental health counseling they might need. So she was nice enough to let me come over to her house in South Seattle and talk with her about her work in transgenerational trauma that has shaped who she is and how she sees the world. I'm I'm very interested in your work. Can mm-hmm. you can you tell me about it?
0: I'm contracted with Juvenile Court, Juvenile Law Superior Court of King County, mm-hmm. and I've been in that position for nearly four years now. This is a position that was handed to me after returning to Seattle, and I'd looked for a job for a very long time, couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just presented to me, and I thought... My gosh, working with teenagers in a bureaucracy with judges and attorneys, certainly not my first choice of a Mm -hmm. position, but I do love a challenge, and I looked at it like, you know, there's something for me to learn, something I can bring to this position. Maybe I can be involved in change of some sort and hopefully make a difference for somebody. Much to my surprise, I so love working with the youth that's the highlight of my position. Mm -hmm. What I do with them is very limited to pretty much just sitting with them and interviewing them um, in terms of where they're at now, emotionally, mental Mm health-wise, how they've gotten to that point, and where they want to go from there. And what has surprised me, I think, is that a lot of youth, they soak up Love and support. Many of them, of course, there's exceptions. Some are very guarded and shut down. But the majority of them, when they see they have in me an audience that is non-judgmental, mm-hmm. non-critical of them, and wants to be supportive and see something in them that uh, is is deeper than just the offenses that have brought them there or the trouble they've been. I can kind of catch a glimpse of who they really are. They respond well to that, and very warmly.
2: Is your training as a therapist or a social worker? or
0: My training is as an, is an art therapist. I oh. went through an art therapy program at the University of Illinois, so that's my master's, and my bachelor's is in psychology.
2: Is there a tension for you... With your background as an art therapist working in such a rigid system,
0: almost oh, definitely.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a very difficult place to be because the courts are demanding, and um, that doesn't always fit with with the process. It doesn't always fit with the youth that we work with, and so I have to find a way to create some flexibility to do what I want and need and have to do within the realm of the demands of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of politics involved. There's a lot of favoritism involved. And there's a lot of people that really should have gone a long time ago from that system. Mm-hmm. But because they've, they've been there for so long, there's this perspective that they just can't be gotten rid of no matter what they're doing mm-hmm. you know, or how inefficient they are. So there's many barriers to the work that we do with the kids. But at the same time, there are a number of people that work in the court system that want to do everything possible to make it fair and to support the youth and to be involved in the movement of restorative justice, creative justice, looking at different options beside in- incarceration. hmm and I'm really excited to see that movement. It's, it's very slow, but it's coming. And it's benefiting a lot of kids.
2: It seems like such a crucial time to mm-hmm. get that perspective into their world.
0: Definitely.
2: I can only imagine that working with children in such you know, vulnerable positions, um, that that pressure feels even greater.
0: It does. It feels greater because I see... Um I see where they're headed with their lives, many of them. now there are those that want to change, that are working on change that have made a lot of progress, and there are others that are so caught up in their pain and their addiction and their family struggles that they're they're just caught up in the moment and they don't know how to get out and it's very painful to see. Mm-hmm. It's very painful to watch them self-destruct. And it's incredibly painful when when their dysfunction and their struggles encroach in my life in a more personal way. It, it comes closer if I watch the news, which is kind of rare these days, mm-hmm. and hear these stories, or somebody might come up shot and killed and that's happened a couple times Hmm. because of the lifestyle these kids are living.
2: How has your job affected the way you raise your son?
0: Well, on the one hand, it, it's really terrifying for me if I pause and let myself feel it. Hmm. But on the other hand, and I don't let that consume me. It's it's a momentary thing, and then I, I'm able to push it back. Uh, but on the other hand, I cannot let it really impact... Um, my, my son's need to become independent and an individual. Hmm. And he is very much you know, independent at, that, at this time. He comes and goes with his friends. He's on the train. He's on the bus. He's all over Seattle. And there was a time when I thought, oh, no, there's no way, and I've got to make sure he's not by himself, and he's always paired up with somebody, and I don't want him to go here or there. I'm going to have to drive him. But as his life is unfolding, I'm seeing that I need to give him the space to do what he wants and needs to do. Now, within parameters, of course, we talk about how he's going to get there. We talk about who he's with. Mm-hmm. He checks in with me while he's out. Um, I try to share my, my concerns with him, talk about how to handle situations, and get a feel for where he's at throughout that whole process. But in the end, I cannot hold him back based on my fear Mm. because then he's not going to be able to grow and mature the way he needs to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's a balancing act constantly, and it's one that I don't know that I'm very good at. I don't know that I'll ever master it, but it's a thoughtful process that I consider every step of the way. And there's no guarantees. You know, I I pray inside my head and I, um, I send him good thoughts while he's out there and I tell him to stay safe and, you know, I do what I can, but there's no guarantees. Hmm. And it isn't until he comes back home and steps in that door and I get a look at him that I know, okay, he's back home, he's safe, he's all right, and um, until the next time but I, I refuse to just keep him inside and lock him in because of my fears or because of what's happening in the world. Hmm. So there's, there's no easy answers to those questions. Right. I'm figuring it out as I go. Yeah. Hmm. I find that the work I do with juvenile court has really made me very cynical and that's another piece that kind of complicates it because I'm working with these kids that are running away, they're hooked on drugs, they're involved in sexual trafficking, um, they're gang banging, you know, they're armed when they go out, and I have to really talk to myself and say, yeah, that's going on with them, but that's that's not my son, that's not what he's into, and and not let my work experience color my perspective of all kids Mm -hmm. in that age range.
2: And yet live with that very real danger of what it's like to be a child Mm -hmm. in in this community, in this world right now.
0: Right. Particularly a child of color. Mm -hmm. Hmm. There's a lot of faith that's involved. You know, me stepping out on faith that Mm -hmm. I've put in place what I can as a parent and he will hopefully use good judgment and remember those things that we've talked about and that I've taught him.
2: Seattle is a very white city. Mm-hmm. Therapy is a very white profession. Right. Is there a pressure for you, even as I'm asking these questions, mm-hmm. to feel like you are being asked to represent an entire community?
0: I don't feel that, really, here in Seattle. Hmm. Um... Maybe that's kind of surprising, but I don't feel that pressure. Hmm. There may be an expectation there by some, I'm not sure, but I can only, I can only talk from my own experience. Mm-hmm. And some of what I've experienced may overlap other people's experiences, but we're all individuals and we, we perceive things differently, we handle things differently, we come from different backgrounds, and... I think that's important to keep in mind about anybody that we hear talking on the radio or elsewhere. This is just one person. We take what we hear with a grain of salt and we look at what overlaps our own experience, what's common among the way we live our lives and the way we feel things.
2: People don't often think of a liberal progressive city like Seattle as being a place where racism happens, but it does. If you live here, you know that first of all, our city is an extremely segregated place with most of the people of color living on the southern edge and constantly being pushed further south by skyrocketing cost of living. And when you think about police violence, you might think of places like Ferguson, but Seattle has had a rough history of police misuse of force, even in the last 10 years. Most notably, in 2010, Seattle police officer Ian e. Burke shot and killed John T. Williams, a Native American woodcarver who was carrying his carving knife and who didn't hear the officer's yells because he was deaf. Recently, an SPD officer arrested an elderly black veteran who was walking on the street using a golf club as a cane. She claimed that he swung the golf club at her and forced the 70-year-old, to spend a night in jail. But again, if you're white and you're not looking or asking for these stories, it becomes really easy not to notice them. So, speaking of your own experience, mm-hmm. you you recently discovered a piece of your past that speaks to the kind of collective trauma in your family line. Right. I was wondering if I could ask you about that story.
0: Yeah, certainly.
2: Your grandfather, right? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me, um, for, I guess, first of all, what you found out about him and, and what that was like for you?
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, throughout my life, I've, I've heard little snippets of information or stories from my mom about her father. I never met him. He passed away long before I was born. And he was kind of a mythical man in my perspective. It wasn't, it didn't feel all that real because we were so far apart in years and in every way. But I think learning the details of his death uh, made him more realistic for me, Hmm. brought him to life, and helped me to feel more connected to him. And to my mom and have an understanding of, um, you know, the, the turn of events and what that meant for our family. Hmm. So it's been healing. It's been, it's provided some closure. It's also very emotional because it connects so directly with what's happening now and the fact that he was killed just outside of Ferguson. Um, you know, that, that brings it to life as well.
2: Can you tell, can you tell us the story?
0: Yeah. Um, so it was 19, let me think, I mom was about eight, so like 1925, I believe. And there's different details as to how old he was, but he was still, he was quite a young man. It was, he was either late 20s or early 30s, somewhere in there, and a manager of a Negro League baseball team which I didn't even know. That was another piece to his story. I had no idea that he was part of the Negro Leagues. And apparently doing fairly well, all things considered, doing well financially um, as a brick mason and the manager of this team. Now, I've seen photos of him, and he looked like a brown-skinned man, but I'm hearing through stories of my family that he was light enough to pass as white, hmm. and that that had a lot to do with why he was doing so well. Hmm. Certainly not within the baseball team, because it was the Negro Leagues, but in, in his other job as a brick mason, that he was able to make a decent living because he was perceived as white. Hmm. So here he was driving a new car, a Buick, um, not a very common thing for an African-American man in 1925. And he had a couple of his team members in there. Might, there might have been several, I'm not sure. and they were driving, I think it was it was a nighttime, you know, through, through an area that was known to be very racist. they were pulled over. Fred was pulled over by a police officer who accused him of speeding and it, the, the conditions did not allow for him to speed. So he spoke up and argued with the, with the officer, um, which, which was pretty much unheard of then. That was not something for a black man to do. And he was immediately considered to be uppity and out of line. And there was some kind of a A fight that ensued. His team members attempted to come out of the car and assist him as this fight was escalating and another officer held him at bay at gunpoint and um, the main police officer said, you know, I'm going to finish him off. They kind of scuffled a bit. He beat Fred with his baton severely until he was unconscious and then shot him and left him in the ditch. And I guess the team members were ordered out of the car. And the story goes that the police then went for a joyride. Hmm. And um, so this, this had a huge impact on his family, not just his wife and three children. My mom was you know, his daughter, obviously. It had a huge impact on them financially, but also Fred was the breadwinner for his family of origin, for his 12 siblings and his mom, and I don't know if his dad was at home or what the family unit was like, but everybody depended on him. Hmm. And so without that income, they just spiraled down into severe poverty. Um, And it was very impactful in my mom's life. It was something she really did not share with me in detail. She mentioned it. But it wasn't like we sat down and really addressed the issues and talked about, well, how did this affect you? She just kind of mentioned it to me in passing. Hmm. Now, my two older sisters, I think, may have heard more about it than I did, but they they had a slightly different relationship with my mom as well, so their perspective might vary on that. But um, I think that and the series of events that happened after his murder were incredibly impactful in my mom in that she just experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering and poverty. And it kind of led her to a place where she shut down emotionally to some degree Mm. and learned how to protect her heart by not really connecting as warmly or as deeply with everybody that she might have otherwise had she not gone through what she did.
2: I can't imagine, I mean, I can only imagine how discovering this story changed your perspective on her.
0: It did. It really gave me a deeper understanding, um, a deeper sense of empathy and compassion for her. And it, it allowed me, because now I'm a different person than maybe when I heard those bits and pieces of a story as a child, it allowed me to just really think about what did that mean for her? What would that have been like for me? And how was her life different because of that experience? And then flash forward to now, you know, thinking about how very little, if anything, has changed Mm. in terms of the way the police handle these encounters with black men um, as well as women uh, that are unarmed, that have not committed a crime, and how it often ends in death without any accountability. Here we are in 2016, the exact same thing is continuing to happen. And it's happening to a greater degree than I think many of us know. We may hear a story here or a story there, but it's happening every single day, multiple times across the country.
2: It feels cynical in that we have more access to awareness of these events than we ever have before, but it doesn't seem... Mm -hmm to change anything.
0: Right, exactly. So I think there is a perspective that, oh, this has just started happening because now we're seeing it. But no, it's been happening for many, many years. And those that are coming forward to film it or to protest, now some of them are being held accountable or even jailed.
2: What an isolating, mind-numbing kind of experience.
0: People want to explain it away. Because it's so horrible and so illogical in a way that we think or some people may think, you know, it can't be what it looks like. There's no way that this could go on to this degree in such a a horrible way. But yeah, yes indeed it is. It is happening that way.
2: How does this collective trauma, some of which has been very much focused on your actual family of origin, Mm -hmm. guide how you work with your clients?
0: Hmm. You know I don't think I've really put it into words like that to have a conscious thought process around how will this guide me. It, I think it's more intuitive than that and it's more subtle and subconscious. I think though it helps me to have a deeper understanding of of the family dynamics and how what happens in one generation trickles down to the next. Mm-hmm and the context may be very different from my context of how it impacted my family but just a general understanding of the connection there and um, the interconnectedness we have to other generations even if we didn't know those people, if we even if we didn't have a relationship the fact that they came before us and there's a genetic connection um, it, It just helps me see things in a deeper way, I think.
2: Hmm. What has your experience been as you build a private practice Mm -hmm. around communities of color and their feelings of accessibility to therapy?
0: Well, there is definitely a stigma that remains in the black community. And I encounter that quite a bit in the youth that I interview. They come into the assessment oftentimes very defensive because they think somebody's labeled them crazy Mm -hmm. by the mere fact that they're sitting there for a mental health assessment. They don't always have positive experiences. There are a number of highly skilled therapists that are invested in those mental health agencies, but oftentimes what happens is a client will get an intern who's there temporarily Mm -hmm. or they get somebody that doesn't look like them that they can't relate to, who may or may not have a clue about how to relate to that client, how to connect with them, how to establish trust. So I think the stigma is broken down one at a time. When they have a positive experience, it breaks down some of those barriers and some of those misconceptions that they can share with other people.
2: The secondary trauma. I mean, so we've talked about the trauma that the secondary trauma you experience in your family. Right. The secondary trauma of simply working with high high trauma clients Mm -hmm. is intense, Um, and and so I'm guessing that you've you've had to turn to develop some pretty serious self care. Practices? (laughs) Practices?
0: <laughs> not nearly enough. Okay. <laughs> and not all that healthy either. <laughs> right. Like a typical
2: therapist. Right. <laughs> right. One of the reasons I'm grateful for my time in community mental health is that, and this was regardless of race and my mm-hmm. clients there, they wanted me to be real. They just wanted me to be real. Mm-hmm. And, um, But I wonder if a lot of therapists have the opportunity to have clients that are demanding them to show up
0: mm-hmm.
2: in authentic ways.
0: Oh. I think that demand, it, it comes about perhaps indirectly. Mm-hmm. They may not say it. They may not say, hey, you're not being real with me. If we're not real with them, they're likely not coming back. So the fact that they keep coming back lets us know that we're doing something right, that they feel comfortable, sure. and they can trust us, and they're connected. And I'll ask my clients, now... I recognize that it's a very rare person that could just sit there and say, you know what, I decided I really don't like you, and and Mm -hmm. you're awkward, and you do this, and you, you know. But um, I give them that opportunity to say, how is this working for you? Are you feeling comfortable? Are you feeling supported? What do you need that I'm not giving you? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I think that they appreciate that opportunity to, to speak up if they, if they so choose to do so and share with me what they need.
2: Ginny, mm. mm-hmm. thank, thank you so much for being oh, you're willing welcome, to talk Dad. with me.
0: You're very welcome.
2: When you grow up in the South, in the suburbs, it gets really easy to ignore racism and the trauma it causes. My co-producer, Mason, and I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a place replete with its own history of racism and markers of what I consider to be our great national sin. Growing up in the suburbs of Lookout Mountain, I didn't even think about the Confederate monuments that I drove past every day on my way to school in the morning. There's a reason that Martin Luther King said in his most famous speech, let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. He did so deliberately because Lookout Mountain was known as a hub for affluent KKK members and their meetings. Growing up, I was completely unaware of my neighborhood's particularly racist past. The summer I was 18, I worked at a private college near my house. And I made a friend, a black guy named Terrence. He was my age. We worked in the cafeteria, and we would hang out all night after work, watching movies and listening to music. One night, we went into downtown Chattanooga and hung out at a coffee shop until midnight. On the way back to Lookout Mountain, I was pulled over by the police. They asked us what business we had doing in the neighborhood, and then they told me that there had been some drug activity in the area. I know now that there was no drug activity in my boring little affluent suburb, but at the time, I didn't, so I let them search my car. We had nothing to hide. We got out and waited. And when they didn't find anything, they told us to be on our way. After getting back into the car, I could see how shaken Terrence was. I asked him if he was okay, and he asked me if I had noticed how the police officers had shined their flashlights in his face. I hadn't. They hadn't done that to me. Over the course of the next few days, several puzzle pieces clicked for me. I was driving a black man into a fancy neighborhood. And it didn't matter that he attended the fancy private college that was there. That's why I had been pulled over, and Terrence had received a different treatment than I had. Over a decade later, I would work in community clinics with men on probation, and I would routinely find them back in jail after being pulled over for things I routinely got warnings for. Things like an expired license. If you're a white therapist working with a client who is not white, the gap between your experience of the world and theirs is expansive. And yet, in a culture that is seeming ever more dismissive to the experience of those who are not white, I find that our challenge has most recently been best described by, of all people, conservative pundit Glenn Beck. I read these words that he said in an interview recently about his change of mind regarding the Black Lives Matter movement. He said, We need to listen to one another as human beings and try to understand one another's pain. Empathy is acknowledging someone else's pain and anger while feeling for them as a human being, even and maybe especially when we don't necessarily agree or understand them. So I never thought I would end a podcast with a quote from Glenn Beck, but I wouldn't have predicted a lot of things about the last year. I can, however, predict that racism and the collective or transgenerational trauma it causes will be a real thing that our fellow citizens deal with for a long time. May we hear their stories. This has been Between Us. I'm John Totten. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. As usual, find us on social media. Let us know your feedback. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. And in the meantime, take care.